Keeping Track, and you're listening to Molly Huddle, Alicia Montano, and Roisin McGettigan-Dumas. We want to highlight the important topics, inspiring stories, and amazing women in sport. We're three Olympians from two countries, two moms, and one current pro coming together to talk about issues we're passionate about in the sports world. And we care about the current and future landscape of women's sports. And this is just how we're keeping track. In this episode, we talk to Dr. Francine DeRope, who specializes in social and cultural determinants of health at Carleton University in Ontario, and Dr. Heather Hillsberg, ombudsperson of the Systemic Investigations Team in British Columbia and former English and Gender Studies professor. These two women are experienced sociologists, and they collected data on representation of race and gender on three running magazine covers over the last 10 years. We discuss their findings of underrepresentation of BIPOC, why representation is important, especially in areas like distance running, which are viewed in this country as largely white, and how media outlets can have a positive impact on reversing this image and driving social change going forward. Thanks for keeping track. Hi, friends. Welcome to episode 22 of Keeping Track. I'm here with my co-host, Molly Huddle and Alicia Montaño. How you guys keep in? Is that okay? <laughs> good. So good. Um, we say wow. that. We say that. It's how you keeping? So and this is called keeping track. So maybe yeah. that's a new intro. I yeah. love keep it. it. I love it. Oh my gosh. Um, things. Uh, to be honest, you know, we are moving here on the Montagna front. Um, wow, that's such a mom thing to say, but. <laughs> <laughs> um it's true we've we've um my son Lennox is now almost four months and um he it makes things a lot easier the older babies get obviously people a lot of I've been reading I didn't I didn't think this about my kids but a lot of people are like oh my gosh savor this time before um they're you know around six months where they're really like trying to be mobile but I love that we've always been like hurry up and move but I don't mean to be like <laughs> to I'm not track. trying to wish yeah I'm not trying to wish away their time um or their like babyhood it's just like it's so much more fun when they're everybody's able to do things so it's kind of this interesting balance that we're having right now um we're in that blissful stage of just you know baby doesn't cry all the time just mm-hmm. you know and and watches the, uh, <laughs> Lanann Astor run around and loves it and is laughing and talking. So I'm in that stage of uh, life right now. Um, and yeah, I've got uh, promotions still that are now about to actually roll out with my book. Obviously, you know, we're talking less and less about COVID, although it's still um, very okay. present. But the delays of that has, you know kind of just allowed us an opportunity to truly be able to promote more and more of my book. Yay! And, and Rose showing us. Hand. And it's yeah. amazing. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Get a yeah. copy, everyone. Yes. And yeah. I ordered one yesterday, even though I have one, but I left it in Arizona. So buy it, people. How are you going to see a book and be fit this yeah. summer without this book? Yeah. <laughs> I love that. So how are you guys? Good. Good. We, um... I'm back in Rhode Island. I made it. We yeah. did not. We did not drive. We kind of panicked and flew. We, we like planned a trip and then realized it was either going to be 15 hour days, three 15 hour days of driving, or like six nights of camping. So we were kind of like, let's just roll the dice on the flight. Um, and it feels good to be home, back in 
the little state of Rhode well, Island. Already. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I haven't, you and have yeah, haven't yet seen Ro. I'm kind of like sort of like self-quarantining. Um, yeah, good idea. Two more days here, but then we're close. But yet so far, you're yeah. only a few miles away right now. Yeah. But so <laughs> oh, that's so good to, yeah. and important to do your part in self-quarantining. Yeah. And one, um, yeah. one more little note, though. Um, I know we mentioned that the tank tops for yeah. and mother that. Uh, I just wanted to give people an update, even though no one's asked me about it. <laughs> um, I was actually thinking today. I was like, I wonder what's the story. Yeah. Okay. So the printing is really delayed due to COVID um, from the place that I ordered them from. They have not yet arrived. But when they arrive, um, we'll just take that whole month and give those proceeds to Ann Mother. And I'll let you guys know. And they'll be on our website to order. And they're really cool. They're good for summer. They're tank tops instead of T-shirts. So check out keeping-track.com for those when they come. Um, it should be in the next next week or two yeah showed on the insta etc great and Ro, the baby's growing (laughs) it is it is so i'm just about to cross the finish line with some work projects and kids are finishing up school so and then i'm about to shift into baby mama mode and uh summer mode as they say around here um but right now i'm like head down crunch time just get a few things done and then I'll be coming up for air hopefully. <laughs> oh, I remember that too too much. Yeah. Uh, that's so awesome. <laughs> How, well, so I know I always ask, but it's impossible to keep track except for when you're on keeping track. Yeah. Um, how far along are you? So by the time this air is, I'll be about six or seven weeks to go at that point. So like eight weeks, seven, eight weeks. Oh, yeah, six, I don't know, somewhere so in August, there. August, August due date. Yeah, yeah. August, August. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love it. Yeah, I'll be hanging around for a bit more. But yeah, doing a race, slowing down, so, slowing so down. Fun. Yeah. Um, but yeah, all good. Yeah. So I wanted, yeah, just to introduce like some of the, um, amazing guests we have on today's show and um, my good friend Francine Dara um, is a doctor in Canada who studies doctor of sociology and her friend Heather Hillsberg, Dr. Heather Hillsberg um, and they come on and talk about this interesting little study we did on race representation in running magazine covers um, Francine, I went to Providence College with her, we ran on the track team together um, She's married to Olympian Dylan Wikes, who's a Canadian marathoner and has two kids and has worked in this field of sociology since she graduated from college. Um, and so a lot of research and all it, it you know, focuses a lot on social justice and health equity. Um, and then Heather is also I don't know Heather personally, but she was a great guest and she is an expert on women's literature and has written books and what did you guys think of our conversation and their report actually more importantly yeah I thought it was great to have the experts and the numbers you know I think that's important when you're making an argument especially one that's in a way calling out um you know industry leaders and um media uh like runner's world women's running canadian running so um it definitely ties into the recent conversation about the whiteness of the distance running community and that's who those magazines cater to and um you know we've all had our the study stemmed like we said from our personal conversations that we were having with each other um about representation on the covers and so it was great to have that backup and sort of 
the truth, not just our emotions and what we feel like is happening. This is what's really being represented. And so, yeah, it was great that those women got to work on that. I know it took a couple of months to get all those numbers crunched and um, we're really grateful for that. Definitely. Yeah. I I will definitely say the same thing about having the numbers to back it up because, you know, especially um, racist people will think like, oh, you just feel this way about that because, you know, Mm -hmm. you're pulling a race card and I'd want everybody to never use race card ever again. Um, But, you Mm -hmm. know, ever, it's just, that's racist to say that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But it is, it's interesting, you know, that this conversation has been long swirling again in our social circle, but to um, know that I'm kind of like a living statistic, you know, like I'm, my brain's like calibrating, like no black runner, like every, every uh, month, because I am, I am in that space. I am a black runner and Mm -hmm. I would pick up runners world magazine. And I remember I even posted um, a while back, you know, I felt I was, you know, giving uh, encouragement to Kara Goucher, who, you know, graced Runner's World magazine for, I think, maybe like the seventh time. <laughs> um, and a Three Twins ice cream. And I was just, you know, saying, but I also in the back of my mind was also like, okay, my a friend of mine, great. What's the next one going to be like? So of course I bought that one, but I hadn't purchased one in a while. Um, mm-hmm. So it's just really interesting just to kind of see that and even have the statistics that were shared um, about women's running magazine and, you know, really having to make a really, really big push, um, in 2013. Um, you know, that was just really interesting to me just to kind of see that there was a deliberate push to diversify. Yeah. They've really grown and improved their coverage over the last, since 2013 time. Yeah. We're curious what, what started that. And, and that's important to sort of acknowledge that as progress and yeah, um, still well. got to keep going, but yes, good to yeah. acknowledge women's running made that sustained push. Totally. Yeah. And it's interesting too, to talk about this is I, I, um, I felt like it, I, in our conversations, I kept mentioning, you know, runner's world magazine because, you know, they have all sorts of content that should be in there to help all runners. Right. But like, mm-hmm. and that's like the I, that's yeah. the main one. Yeah. Like right. that's a big right. magazine. It's in the airport. Like it's a running right. distance running magazine that you can get every, almost everywhere. Everywhere. Right. And, um, it, but it was interesting too, because I really, um, I was on the cover of women's running magazine in 2013 and I kind of, I always keep my eyes peeled. I just always do. Um, but I've seen them include different bodies and different, mm-hmm. you know, variations of skin color on the front of their magazine. And I, again, just because my eyes are more on it, I just thought it was so interesting that I maybe hadn't even recognized 2009 to 2012. And I just have always been like, Oh, you know, they, they, Mm -hmm. they, they kind of do a pretty good job um, Mm -hmm. of switching it up, but that's really interesting. Canadian, Canadian running. um, We're also talking to you, (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, and and all the magazines would be, this is just some, they just did a study with three magazines. It was uh, runner's world, um, women's running magazine and Canadian running magazine, but I'd be interested, um, in outside magazine, all the outdoor Mm -hmm. spaces, um, all those outdoor, all the magazines, but all the outdoor magazines, it'd be really interesting to see what that looks like. And if our listeners are, um, curious, I would Mm -hmm. challenge you to kind of take a look too and write, write to the editors. And, you know, if it's something that you see and you know, that 
change needs to be made, it's really important for us to have representation yeah. for everybody in the world to see different bodies in different spaces because we all belong wherever we yeah. want to be. Um, yeah. So, yeah. When we started this conversation about, you know, maybe exploring the actual statistics, I remember, I think, was it you, Alicia? One of us did a quick Google search on our phone and recorded the like Google images that popped up. That that was a startling uh, little video that I think it was you made it, Alicia. Yeah, yeah. She actually shared that, you know, as well when, when we shared this report. Um, and it was like, wow, there's, there's looks like very little representation here. And, you know, then we come back a, a few months later and we have the statistics from the last 11 years from Runner's World. And the, the, the key kind of uh, data that's come out of it is only 15% of covers featured a person of BIPOC. So 14.8. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, 14.8. So I can't be that. rounding up, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, you know, we can look at that number and, you know, discuss it in different ways. But over the course of us even exploring this with research, we've had several different guests on who've talked about how that impacts them personally, mm-hmm. right? So we can zoom out and look at the research. We can also zoom in and hear the narrative of Marie Hall that I don't see myself in that magazine and how important that see it to be it is. And we just we just really want media companies, as we all personally do this work, to you know, to look at this a little bit more, understand their power and their influence. And I think our guests do a great job at really explaining why media is important <laughs> and how how it, ha- it kind of perpetuates a narrative and a cycle and helps people see themselves in certain spaces. Um, and that's why we explore this. We're, we really want to understand, you know, what is the role of a media company and, um, you know, how, how they can maybe look at themselves a little bit and understand that we're all Im- involved in this, right? Mm-hmm. That we all look at our blind spots, right? We're all doing the work. So um, get uncomfortable again. <laughs> get uncomfortable, but also, you know, I think this is a really... Um, this is a really important time for people to just look at their circle. I really do think so. And not be afraid to call people out or, mm-hmm. um, I, the racist people, um, overtly racist people will come out of the cracks right uh-huh. now at this time. You're going to see it. Um, some of the things I always think about is, you know, okay, now if runner's world or, you know, it puts a black person, or, you know, black indigenous person of color on the front of their, their magazine, I always think about their business and how they're going to look at their numbers, how many people want to buy that magazine with a black person on it and how they feel about that within their business. I just want for companies to keep doing it. You know, Mm -hmm. it's probably gonna to have, I don't know. I don't know. I just think Mm -hmm. about that all the time because I know I've thought about that in marketing for a really long time of like, okay, Mm -hmm that they don't feel like that's going to sell for them and it might not. Mm. Um, but you've got to keep doing it. Doesn't that's not the point of, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. helping. Can't just be yeah, about bottom line. It can't be about magazine yeah. sales, like sales. They have to look at, okay, how is this like institutionally, you know, institutionalized racism and how are we mm-hmm. perpetuating that? Right. And right. how, and how eventually their, their bottom line can be addressed if you're, mm-hmm broadening your audience you know just because mm-hmm. people really apparently bought a lot of the Kara Goucher magazines for them to do like seven more or however many more mm-hmm. um but that's not very 
creative that's you know you don't know what else could be selling you don't know what mm-hmm. other audiences you could be cultivating and mm-hmm. um so I think well, that's an important yeah and like, like that like you know there is the I can't remember the exact term again but it's like when you know people then you like them and then you mm-hmm. know yeah the familiarity like breeds popularity mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. yeah right which so. I don't know if that's the right saying but like something along those lines <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> And like, you know, Alicia, just on a good personal note, like I've always said to you and Molly as well, I mean, how many national titles do you have to win, right? Like you're at 20 well, something now. That's kind of how our conversation started, I think, mm-hmm. which is yeah. mutually, you know, we tied in also sort of like um, a sexualization of the person who's on the cover and how if you, you know, apart from racializing it, it's you have to have a certain look as a woman there are I think we didn't talk about it in the study but 67 percent of the runner's world covers were women for example which um mm-hmm. they tend to sell like sort of the like sports bra short shorts like eye candy look um mm-hmm. because it sells and it's like well you also have to fit into that you know even mm-hmm. though you run 100 miles a week it's like you still have to have some <laughs> yeah <laughs> some curves yeah. somewhere but not right, too but big but not too small but also mm-hmm. you know it's like a whole mm-hmm. look and so mm-hmm. we, yeah, we were originally talking yeah. about that and then it spun yeah. into um how important really the representation is but on these I, covers. I mean I mean besides the eye candy piece which is I don't know <laughs> if that's why I would buy a magazine I want to know about the person on the cover right so like I'm interested how, like what's the mentality of 20 something um you know, national titles or Alicia, right? Let's look at your career. You've got global medals. Do you have an Olympic medal? I can't keep track of all these upgrades you've had. <sighs> yeah, that's the story. I'm fourth right now. Um, okay. Okay. Yeah, they have a separate case going for that for that bronze. Okay. But basically, yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> global medals, you know? maybe Olympic medals, several national titles, right? And that's your accomplishment in running the running world, right? But that's not enough to be on a cover, right? Yes. Um, and now then we like look at and say, OK, well, now Alicia is also redefining what, you know, pregnancy and running is like. Right. So you're, you know, running at the nationals and that wasn't enough. And then you not only then did that on a personal level, you also took that to change policy for women runners forevermore or female athletes across the globe in several different sports basically revolutionize the industry on like how the language in con- professional contracts are for all the budding female athletes forevermore. Like talk mm-hmm. about massive change in, in one, um, in one campaign. Um, and that wasn't enough. So I'm just like scratching my head being like, how, how do you not find these compelling stories from you guys and I know I'm your friend so obviously I'm I have right. that side of it but I, I objectively I look at your guys statistics and I'm like baffled how does this not warrant a, a cover and we didn't really get to, into it in in the in the conversation with the guys but um you know how important is that as an athlete to have that you know opportunity you know could you guys yeah that a little bit more um I I, I... I think I, I'll go first and then Molly can say, um, I think one, I just want to make this clear. It doesn't have to be me, right? There's so many other black indigenous people of color that warrant, uh, a cover magazine, if we're going to say warrant. Um, and it doesn't, it doesn't even have to be a professional runner, but for us at, as this part of the business, it is a great space for us. And I know that's part of what they do. They're going to tell also elite stories, right? Um, 
it is part of our business. Most contracts have a bump in there. If you make it on the cover of a magazine, a major magazine and a major magazine that is within writing is runner's world magazine. So it's kind of crazy to think that you're already not going to (laughs) get something Mm -hmm. based on the way that you look, you know, if you're not the quote unquote, we talked about this in the podcast, uh, the eye candy quote unquote, and then now put a layer of blackness onto that eye candy. Um, and so quote unquote mm-hmm. eye candy, and you guys will have to listen to hear how we uh, address the term eye candy. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, yeah, I think it's a really interesting. And then for us, it also helps just across the board, um, women, um, athletes in terms of marketability, how people are seeing you, you know, Oh, I saw this person on the cover of a magazine. And then when they see you in, um, uh, on the track, they recognize you um, and then that ultimately allows for there to be this, this larger, um, hopefully upward chain of marketability. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. So it is a massive opportunity for a boon for any athlete to be on the cover. Yeah. Right? Like, like runner's world is at least this is how I thought of it. And maybe this is something I overinflated, but I, like, you guys can tell me if this, that Runner's World was sort of like the magazine to be on as far as a, um, cause it brings you as a runner and usually it's distance runners that they focus on, but like they have some, I don't know how many track athletes they've had, but it brings you into the, the mainstream media mm. more. Like it's a, mm. it's one of those it's magazines. Yeah. yeah. That isn't so much niche like track and field news was it's like, I'm very mainstream magazine. Um, mm. gets a lot of, gets into a lot of homes and if you're on the cover of that a lot of other brands are like oh like you're a face that we can put uh, that okay. that we can put on things like yeah. you you pass that test like oh runners world wanted you then like mm-hmm. yeah like you're one of those athletes that we want everywhere then and so mm-hmm. that's kind of how I always saw it you know it was like the big ones made it to runners world um and I remember when I started my career, I was like, you just gotta like be really good and they'll call you and then you'll like, you know, do your photo shoot. <laughs> it's like 13 <laughs> years later, I was like, you know what? I have not found a good answer to the, how you get on the cover of world. Mm-hmm. I've, I've heard some answers I don't like very much, but none of them are like, well, you just need one more medal or one medal or that. And it's like, mm-hmm. it's always it like that. one more. It's a, mm-hmm. you don't have the luck. Sorry. Yeah. We just, you know, like, to, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Like you're it, like, we always are teaching our kids it's not about beauty on the outside. Mm-hmm. It's what's on the inside. And then yeah. literally media is telling you, actually, it's what's on the outside. I don't <laughs> care about what's on the inside. But it's also um, like, it's it's also like, well, are you like a recycled enough version of this thing that has sold well before that we can just like bloop, oh, yeah, put you on the cover and you'll mm-hmm. sell stuff for us too. So it's like mm-hmm. very much like, um, and Heather addresses this in our episode, the chicken or the egg. Like a lot of the times the media will take something and then it becomes held up and then it becomes like the socialized standard for what's good and accepted and popular and pretty or whatever. And then you don't mm-hmm. even know where it came from. It's just like this recycled yeah, yeah, thing. So yeah. you, see, you see that a lot too. And it's like, how do you even break into that? And mm-hmm. is it even a good thing that that happens? Yeah. I'm just thinking, you know, something you mentioned there, Molly, how, you know, runners world, you know, obviously they had their own kind of uh, story of formation, et cetera. And um, but how you say they're not really a track and field magazine though they like they're runners well but they're not that then therefore leaves out a lot of athletes that are um, remarkable top athletes across the world that are not going to get that opportunity right there totally totally right? I mean I think I don't know if they would classify themselves in that way but it is more of a like 
road racing, road running and road running participants mm. kind of yeah. focus. Um, yeah. I always thought when, you know, just coming from Ireland and seeing those magazines, I thought, oh God, hopefully there's like a sprinter's world then or something, right? Because if this is like, but there's not. <laughs> and I, I really do want to, I want to, yeah, I want to talk on this a little bit, actually. Yeah. This kind of de- goes further into the systemic racism right? When we look at circles and we look at distance running circles, we can see that there are a lot of white bodies in there. Why do you think a magazine would pop up and call it Runner's World and only include things that would particularly talk to white masses? I think that I don't feel like running is uh, streamlined to distance running. I feel like that's a white lensed idea of what running is. Mm -hmm. Um, I've always said this. I've said, Oh, it'd be really nice if they could do these 5k races and do a K or whatever to fit. I understand the point Mm -hmm. of having a little bit more time to do a run, um, or a mile or something that kind of allows people to be more involved within the running scope. It doesn't always have to be a 10 miler to constitute as a runner. I mean, I would never fit in a runner's mold if that was Mm. the case. You know, I'm not going for a half marathon. I'm not running a marathon, Um, but I'm very much a runner. I I live, I breathe it. I, Mm -hmm. I, I need to run. I love it so much. There's so much clarity. So I don't really, I don't love the, the, the point about runner's world, you know, kind of being this space where it's for recreational running. That also tells us that we need to change how we look at recreational running mm-hmm. and how we inc- make it more inclusive for all bodies to mm-hmm. be a part of running. I don't know. So just going deeper into that. And even when you go and say, if you want to celebrate Disney princesses or whatever the whole thing is, when you go to the store and you're going to make a Disney princess, um, a little tangent, everybody, we're talking about Disney princesses, uh, <laughs> you know, party. It's like still the ones, if they're going to pick four, it's going to be, the Snow White, the Cinderella, Little Mermaid, and um, I can't, my fourth finger is not, it's dangling everyone. Um, <laughs> Belle, Beauty and the Beast. Mm-hmm. That's how it always Sorry. is. There's not a, even mm-hmm. Tiana thrown on there or Moana thrown on there. Mm-hmm. It's like, you be, that we recognize you might not want black people at your table, but, <laughs> you know. <Yeah. laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, so my whole point, we're talking about representation, everybody. So it turned into this Disney thing because I'm thinking about my kids. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't have my kids watch old Disney movies. I just don't. Mm-hmm. I can't do it. There's so many things about it. I just cannot do it. Mm-hmm. And I don't even feel like talking with other parents like, hey, can Linnea come over? We're going to watch blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, I'm that parent that's like, now, you know, but yeah. I have to be. It's about protecting my 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 child, you know, and helping her recognize she's she is strong. She's brave. She's mm-hmm. smart. And mm-hmm. she is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, you can be all those things, but the media that you're about to watch is not going to let well, you know that that's a fact for you. It's important. Even how old is Linnea now? She's Louisiana. five and she's, she's, she's about, she's going to be six in August. So she's still so young and you still, you know, that stuff is sinking into her brain. Like you, totally. I remember we were talking one day and you were watching a track meet and it was, <sighs> the 1500 and she made a comment somewhere along the lines of like that event didn't have any girls that looked she like her. Said, so she can't yeah. like some, what tell us what she said. She said, uh, we were watching indoor, um, I think it was a new balance grand prix. And she said, um, Oh, now it's the black girl's turn to run. Cause the 1500 just ran. And I go, what do you, what do you mean? She goes, well, the white girls just ran It's 15 or it was a two mile or whatever that just ran. And then it was like the 400 and I was just like, oh, I go. And I had to, I don't remember the full part, but that's what she just basically just said. She just said, it's the, it's the black girl's turn to run. 
Um, and I go, well, Linnea, you know that it doesn't matter what color your skin is and how far you can run or what distance you, you run. Um, this just happens to be the sample size is how I've talked to this sample size group of runners. Um, and I said, take for instance, and of course I get on the internet and I pull up, um, what was the example? I pulled up 2016, 1500 meter. Um, at, wor- at Worlds, right? Is that what you At use? Worlds, yeah. yeah. I, no, I, or, or the Olympic Games. I think it was Olympic Games. The international. An like, international competition. Yeah. I was like, take a look at all these runners all the world everybody's you know you can run whatever event you like you want to run and I was like and you know what Linnea you could even run um the two mile one day you know and she was like oh yeah like that girl looks like me and she was just pointing all the girls that looked like her that were running in a uh, distance event so mm-hmm. um I we can't do anything about what's actually like she's really seeing this isn't like a fake media you know mm-hmm. um, no, no fake news here <laughs> there's no fake news there it was actually what was yeah. it literally was a bunch of white girls that were running it was because it was an american <laughs> indoor an american indoor race and so that's yeah. our demographic that was our sample size and i don't know it was a full lesson for her and mm-hmm. um it also just made me want to be even more i mean i don't know how much more intentional i could be about running <laughs> but taking her on the runs um on my off days because <laughs> I'll do something, you know, else, but mm-hmm. she would go running with me when I was running super slow pregnant she would ask to go running with me. So now I'm like, okay, maybe, you know, I'll just have her. She knows now, obviously this is like earlier this year. And I went super deep into uh, talking about all the diversity and where we belong and all these spaces in this, my own mom mm-hmm. mode way of teaching her that, Hey, you know, they're just, that's just a small group of people, but it, you can do anything you want to be, do, you know, and I'm intentional mm-hmm. about showing her that even with, as in my adult lens, I see, Ooh, like yeah. we are not there. Mm-hmm. So, and at least that reminds me of like some of the things I'm seeing recently on social media about sometimes the, the work that um, black mothers have to do in order to mm-hmm. kind of offset like the cultural representation or like the messaging from the media, et cetera, that you have to do a lot of a work, you know, to, you know, for your own, obviously as a parent, you do that anyways, but it seems like you have to double down and like, Hey, don't take that as like the grain, you know, don't take that as the truth, you know, don't take that as the truth. Right. I mm-hmm. like, listen to me here, zone in here. Um, and that just, that there is another layer of like that emotional labor that you have to, that you just have to, that is just, you have to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you said it. Mm-hmm. All this stuff, it's so deep. It's so, so, so deep. And I'm happy to be having this conversation, to be honest. I feel a lot of relief in having these conversations because it's felt like uh, back of the mind conversations you can't really have with white people. Like, mm-hmm. that's a book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? Um, yeah. It's not really yeah. for everybody, but it could be. It, it could be a book. <laughs> it could be your next, next one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. But I have been able to everybody have it with my white friends, um, even if it's relatively uncomfortable. I've kind of always, uh, well, mostly in my adulthood, been able to point out, well, well, you know, to be honest, this is what I see here. And I think, I hope that it's microaggressions, right? That, you Mm -hmm. know, that are just to people like, oh, I'm not being overtly racist, but there's like these little microaggressions that we have to call out. Well, um, Molly, want to take us away? 
Yes, we have talked almost as long as our guests will talk. Oh, so no. <laughs> here, here are really um, yeah. here are our two ladies, Francine Dirac and Heather Hillsberg, are experts. They're doctors. They're experts, and they're talking about their study that they named. Um, what was the name of it again? Race to um, racing for representation. Thank mm-hmm. you. Yeah. There we go. Thanks, guys. Let us know what you think. Hello, welcome to Keeping Track. We have some special guests today. We have Dr. Francine Darach, who is a assistant professor in health sciences at Carlson University. Her research focuses on equity-oriented health promotion when populations experience marginalization. Her current research aims to address inequities in physical activity for pregnant women and parents with the goal of to improve quality of life and overall health. Her research also examines gender and sport, including female distance runners and their experiences of pregnancy. Overall, her research is committed to social justice and health equity. We also have Heather Hillsberg, who is currently working for the government of British Columbia. She has completed a PhD and postdoctoral fellowship with a focus on women's literature and her recent book entitled Urban Captivity Narratives, Women's Writing After 9-11, was recently published by Routledge Press. Thank you for joining us, ladies. Thanks so much for having us. (laughs) Doctor ladies. I love it. (laughs) So, yeah, there's some intros, right? We have the experts today. We have the experts. (laughs) Oh, God, I don't feel like an expert. (laughs) Where do we start? Where do we start? So, um, we, Roisin, we asked for um, Heather and Francine to... um, do a little bit of digging for us, a little bit of research, since as you, everybody that's listening knows, they are experts in research. And um, I think a lot of this stemmed from, um, you know, I, well, we're all runners and Molly and I had ha- been having this conversation, I think over, you know, period of time, just kind of, it, you know, passing about um, one magazine in particular is what we kind of mentioned. I, I'm always keeping my eyes out on all the magazines and all spaces of representation for um, BIPOC people. Um, And I just never, I just have, it's far and few in between where I see enough representation. Um, And I can't remember exactly where we got to talking um, about, again, where it was more of an in-depth conversation and just a little background on me. Um, I am, you know, now 34 Woo, had a birthday. Um, and I'm coming more into my own as a black woman. Um, and I say that to say, you know, I grew up in a predominantly white area. Talking about race is just not a thing. I experienced so many different um, facets of racism and um, underrepresentation. But you just can't talk about it, especially when it's not with your peers. If you mention it, people don't really quite understand. And so it kind of came back around to me now as an adult, being able to have this conversation with my friends and feeling comfortable having that conversation talking about runner's world in particular, because we were talking about bringing people on the show and some other things. And I just said, you know, runner's world doesn't have, they, they I, I don't understand why they don't have any black people on the covers of their magazine or brown people or, you know, and then it got to thinking like, well, what's the numbers? And I'm like, I don't really know the numbers, but I can tell you cause I'm a runner and I, and I, you know, would pick up runner's world magazine. I have for a, pretty long period of time before I kind of just stopped because it was just so ridiculous that I just never felt represented, not even within the pages. And so um, that brought us to the point where Molly even mentioned, yeah, you know, I think there's a lot to look at even with 
uh, women's representation in sports media um, and, you know, where a magazine such as Runner's World might even pick like the, um, what's my wording I'm going to use for this podcast, but the um, eye candy, you know, um, the <laughs> Americanized no. eye candy. And that even further drove home the fact that if Black bodies are very rarely on the cover of a magazine, how much less interested in not saying I want to be eye candy, but I'm just saying how much less interested in terms of um, palatability is a black body at the forefront of something. So anyways, Roisin uh, mm-hmm. did a pretty amazing job connecting with you guys. And I just kind of wanted to dig into that a little bit deeper. Yeah. And before we dig into the numbers that you ladies um, put together and you, you poured through a lot of resources to find, I forget when we started talking about this, but I think this has been quite a few months that you've mm-hmm. been doing the research, you and your team. Um, so we just wanted to let people know this has like been, you know, very before well. This, before mm-hmm. the new year, right? It was yeah. Last, yeah. Last I want to say this was one of the first things, maybe was this December um, when yeah. we were talking about starting the, the research on it. And also, um, Alicia, I know our conversations also stemmed from like, being on the athlete side of the mm-hmm. magazine cover business. And, and you're also like, we're also consumers, we're fans. So you want to see that as that part of that population, but also from the athlete side, we know how hard it is to get on the cover of these magazines. And we're just mm. like, it's definitely not performance. Like it's just such a, <laughs> it's such a random, like, you're like, how, like this is a big deal for the athlete as a brand to get on the cover. And it's a very weird non-direct pass. And so that kind of blossomed into this whole big conversation about representation and stuff too. So that's kind of the background for this episode. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we can segue over. Yeah. And then I was able to be like, I know, I know a girl. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just like context, Francine and I went to Providence College together. Francine was an outstanding scholar, athlete, um, sociology major. I always winning like these academic awards and stuff, which was amazing. And um, we have done some research over the years. Like, well, I have talked to Francine about her research um, and even looked at um, pregnancy and elite athletes, which we actually were publish and stuff on that as well but for this little project we yeah I'd like to hand it over to Francine and and um Heather there to, to explain what we ended up doing we, we had me Molly and Elisa were having a conversation about representation in runner's world and then we were able to bridge over to Francine who's like oh I can uh, I can study that for you guys <laughs> so yeah let's hear Francine thanks. okay well thanks for for the intro there uh so Roe essentially lured me into uh, doing this research. It's obviously uh, an area that I'm very passionate about as well. And I was able to kind of pull together, I always joke, it's like the dream team of uh, women that I know. So Amy Schneeberg um, is also a runner and an epidemiologist. So she was kind of our stats woman on this. And and Heather is uh, gender studies, um, has her PhD in gender studies and is the guru of all things theory. And then I had um, uh, one of my master's students, Candace Roberts, and um, my undergraduate honors thesis student, Jenna Seydouglu, um, as part of this research team. So I just kind of want to give credit there. Uh, so before I even start, um, I just wanted to identify our positionality um, going into this research process. Um, so all of our team members identify as cisgender women. 
Um, four of us identify as white women, and um, my fabulous undergraduate student identifies as a Muslim woman who wears a hijab. So I think, um, you know, as as um, Alicia pointed out, um, understanding people's positions going into um, discussions, I think, is really important. So getting into the the research uh, piece, which we have we've kind of named racing for representation. Uh, so essentially what we did was systematically examine 284 running magazine covers uh, with a specific focus on race and gender. And again, um, this was uh, Molly and Alicia and, and Roe that brought, brought this forward to us. Um, and we wanted to understand media portrayals and representation on popular running magazines. So we decided on um, looking at Runner's World, Women's Running, and Canadian Running. Um, Heather and I are based in Canada, so we wanted the Canadian representation in there. Um, so we looked at all of the uh, magazines that we could locate from 2009 to 2019. Um, so our final analysis included um, 88 women's running magazines, 122 runner's world, and 75 um, Canadian running magazines. Uh, so what did we find? Uh, Black, Indigenous, people of colour are extremely underrepresented on running magazine covers. So Runner's World, over the 11 years that we examined, um, only had representation on 14.8% of magazine covers. Uh, women's Running was 30% and Canadian Running was 14.7%. Um, so part of what we did, too, was we wanted to understand if there were any changes over time. So again, from 2009 to 2019. Uh, so we found that Runner's World and Canadian Running um, both had two years where they did not feature a single Black, Indigenous or person of colour. And we saw no meaningful improvement in representation over the 11 years. So what was interesting is that women's running did not feature any Black, Indigenous, or women of color from 2009 to 2012. But what we saw starting in 2013 was a meaningful and sustained increase in diverse representation. So from 2013 to 2019, 40% of the issues that they released during that time featured um, Black, Indigenous, or women of color. Which does so that, that does is, that line up with the um, percentage of the American population that is also BIPOC, or how do those numbers line up with um, where they should be? Basically, that's always a question. Where they I should have. be? Yeah. So, so there's definitely not. Um, it doesn't match the representation within each country. Um, I'll have to like peek at my notes here to to see what the. Um, Oh, so so in um, the U.S., believe that approximately 40% of uh, U.S. based on census data um, would be identified as uh, visible minorities. Mm -hmm. So no, so no, Molly, to answer your question, it does not for for mm -hmm. both. Wow. Okay. So there you have it. <laughs> oh, I think you lost your reference. Uh, Sorry. Um, that's interesting to know about. Um, women's running magazine and their, their meaningful um, and sustained, you know, uh, increase of Black, Indigenous, people of color. Because um, I wonder if it has anything to do with also just 
uh, the awareness around, I don't know, you know, we had Obama 08 to 2012 and just recognizing how important that was and how big it was, especially to the world, but to like the black community to be like, oh my gosh, we have a black president of the United States of America, um, I, I think. Um, and then in 2013, you know, I was on the cover of Women's Running Magazine. And it was so interesting to me because as a consumer, I did also think the same thing about Women's Running Magazine. And then I felt like, oh my gosh, I have an opportunity to be on Women's Running Magazine. We are turning a, you know, we're, the tides are changing. We're turning a new leaf, whatever all the things you want to say about that. Um and I did recognize even just in bodies, you know, different bodies on Women's Running Magazine. And that is so meaningful. Um, it is so meaningful to just have a deliberate, we're talking about this now, a deliberate and intentional, um, um, you know, push to be more inclusive and sustained inclusive inclusivity. Um, it's kind of what we're talking about in terms of the race where people are, you know, really trying to take a deep dive into their own implicit bias and, um, you know, letting people know, hey, this isn't um, a sprint. This is not going to be done tomorrow. It's not going to be done next week. It's not going to be done in a year. Um, it mm-hmm. takes constant work. And so that's just, re- I just basically I'm coming on to say, like, that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. And 2013 was the year that I did um, have an opportunity to mm-hmm. be on the front of that magazine. Brilliant. Yeah. And we also talked about, you know, how, you know, it takes individuals doing this work and kind of exploring their own biases and how that shows up. And but yet also that media companies have to understand their role. And Heather and Francine, could you guys speak to that? Like how important, you know, is the media? And we've had some guests on the podcast who've talked about how they've kind of like been turned, their you know, the media's turned their back on them or they've been treated unfairly um, or that they don't even actually see themselves in these magazines so they don't even bother buying them right so curious you know from a sociological perspective how important is media coverage and and how where does that trickle trickle down to you know how people see themselves and um maybe kind of identify themselves as a runner or say oh that magazine's for me or how important is that I think that's a really important um question because and I think as like for, for Francine and I, like as social science and humanities people, we're always kind of having to justify like, why is this important? Like why representation? Um, and I think as far as the media is concerned, there's a really important like dialectical or back and forth relationship between how we as like a dominant American and Canadian population understand our reality um, and how we make sense of reality. So the media kind of communicates to us what's normal, what's desirable, how people are supposed to act, how they're supposed to be in the world, like what their roles are in the world. Um, so we learn that. And then as we internalize those, um, like those messages, then we tend to produce more media that is reflective of our reality. So it's almost like a chicken and an egg, right? It's hard to determine who is influencing who at each kind of point in the way. They're just kind of always circling together. Um, and so if we think about running specifically, the lack of representation communicates to us, you know, as consumers of running, as running fans, that racialized women don't belong. Like running, um, as far as representation in these magazines goes, means that, um, you know, black women, quote unquote, don't run or shouldn't be running or there's something strange and unusual about this phenomenon um, you know, and I think a good example of that is uh, I was really struck by Marielle Hall's article 
um, a couple of weeks ago about why she chose to go to the University of Texas, mm-hmm. just to finally be among peers who are racialized and who understand, um, you know, all of the implicit racism that she's been getting as a black long distance runner in the United States. Um, you know, and so I think that there's that kind of part, it shows us how we're supposed to be in society. And without representation, it almost comes to feel like you don't belong in that world. And why would you consume media that's implicitly telling you that you don't belong here? Um, So it's the same across gendered lines. Like if there's no images of women in these running magazines, it communicates that women's running isn't important, that women shouldn't run. Um, If there's no um, people who are members of the LGBTQ community, then that communicates that running is not for them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think about the some of the commentary about that kind of iconic photograph of Alicia when she ran, was it the world trials or Olympic trials when you were pregnant? I ran, um, um, I ran at the um, USA Nationals. So it's Nationals, kind of like a trial okay. to make um, one of our world championships. Okay. Yeah. And just, that. Yeah. And some of the like, but just some of the commentary on that blew me away because I mean, one, it shows that people don't understand that whatever time you ran, like is not a significant effort for one of the best athletes in the world over that distance. But I think it also shows that conception of how women are supposed to be like, you're this delicate vessel that heaven forbid you set foot on the track. Like that's taught and reaffirmed to us in part through media. Um, And something Francie and I have been chatting about as we kind of saw the numbers and were then unsurprised by the numbers is that there doesn't seem to be any real discussion. Like representation is good. Um, but there's no real discussion. It seems so far in any of these magazines about the experience of what, um, you know, racialized friends of mine will call, you know, running while black or competing while Brown kind of thing. And so I think the example of Amod Arbery, for example, shows that like running while black in America is a phenomenally different experience than running as a white middle-class person or running as, you know, what you've termed like, and I think aptly termed like eye candy. And so representation is good. Um, but I think we all need to demand more from these, Mm -hmm. from these publications because the experience of even just, you know, running as a woman Mm -hmm. is so different than any of my male friends who run. And so I think that that's another example of kind of systemic racism is erasing those bodies, implicitly communicating they don't belong. And then as soon as we start including images of those bodies, then congratulating ourselves for being equal when in reality if you just put bodies without problematizing and talking about how those experiences are shaped by racism sexism homophobia then I'm not sure how effective simple representation is going to be mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's that was so well said and I think on the other side of just looking at spaces where we don't belong black people don't 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 there's all these don'ts yeah. and I'm like looking at myself like I surf I my uh what was my um AOL was like skate girl, <laughs> you know, but there's all these things yeah. so interesting of me again, wanting to make sure that I had a place in all of these spaces that were fun. I was just like, I don't see mm-hmm. myself here, but mm-hmm. I guess if I'm, if I go there, then I, I will see myself there, but it's so much deeper than just this individualized uh, concept from, you know, my upbringing to looking at the broad scope of what it looks like. And that took, you know, maturing and growth and being like oh my goodness like this is just not even in my own little bubble because I grew up in Mm -hmm. a white area and I think another thing on the on the flip side is how I was starting this is you know non-black indigenous people of color also being able to see 
Black, Indigenous, people of color in those spaces, you know, takes away, which is crazy, but it's implicit bias, the fear of, oh my gosh, there's a Black person running. What other reason would this Black person be running for unless they were running from something or, you know, they must have stole something or, you know, what other reason? Um, Or to also look at, on another side, a Black, Indigenous person of color and to think only this person is running if they are a professional athlete. That's the only Mm -hmm. reason this person can run. And it's not a recreational space for you. Like, that's the only way you can do it. And um, I think it'd be, I mean, it's, it's just really interesting for parents or, you know, everybody in their own circles just to really think about what they're showing their children. And, um, and I've said this again in multiple different podcasts, I've said it on my own social media platforms, but it's just goes to show that it isn't just our, like I'm saying our Alicia, a black woman, um, once a black kid, our eyes, it's, it's also, you know, white children's eyes and what they see Mm -hmm. and, you know, how they take that into their adulthood. And it's just so deeply ingrained. It's so deeply ingrained. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's a really important point. And it, it, uh, oh gosh, you know what? I just, sometimes whatever I'm going to say just falls out of my brain. And that was, (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say a common argument. I feel like for this kind of lack of representation is, oh, well, because there aren't enough black runners, that magazine will not sell. And I feel like it's important to talk about why that isn't a good reason because, Mm -hmm. You know, like you were talking about, there's a whole larger responsibility for sort of um, putting the messaging out to make other people feel more welcome in that space Mm -hmm. to show white people, like Alicia, what you just said, that runners look like all kinds of people. Um, And also it is the chicken or the egg, right? So if you are business minded, like, why are you narrowing your market like that? Mm -hmm. Like, why are you only advertising to a small section of people? So um, I feel like that's something you see in like the comment section a lot in these arguments. (laughs) If you guys want to address that or have any numbers behind that, um, let us know. Well, I think it's, I mean, I think the idea that there's no racialized runners is a bunch of nonsense. And I think the like, the huge outcry about the attempt to cut Brown's track team or Brown University's track team is a great example of that. Like track is hugely diverse. And it's interesting to me that the, uh, you know, the eye candy, I love that term that you see on magazines that purport to cover running really are only covering in my mind the you know, stereotypical long distance runners body that Mm -hmm. is like hegemonically attractive to like, you know, a certain type of audience and it erases all the diversity that you see in sprinters in long you know in the walks even there's all kinds of different bodies and it seems I think Molly is absolutely right it's really limiting and the underlying Uh, message of like we need a beautiful body to sell this cover and this is the beautiful one and it's like well no there's a lot more beautiful ones if you're going for like cover appeal so it's yeah. sort of the, all this, all these other messages too. Like, yeah. well, this is beautiful, and it's like, yeah. okay, if we're going to use beauty to sell, like, what? Why don't we diversify that? Yeah, too? yeah, absolutely. And I think, sorry, I just remembered what fell out of my brain, but I think a lot of the, <laughs> if you think about the ways that representation is happening, like right now, amidst kind of the our political moment of black, you know, of widespread protests against police brutality. It's interesting to me the types of coverage um, and kind of the tropes that are starting to circulate, um, you know, of like, like Alicia said, like Black people framed as criminals or Black people acting violently or why else would a Black person be running except to 
run away from the scene of a crime. Um, and I think when I, cause you know, watching that race that I mentioned Alicia had such a strong impact on me because that was the first time I really like delved into the comments and really saw how these racialized tropes keep operating. And so there's some really interesting books out there that talk about um, how black women tend to be framed as a number of stereotypes. So there's like mm-hmm. the bad mother, the welfare queen, um, and they completely erase, you know, they're just a bunch of racist nonsense that we need to abandon. But politically, they've been so in- instrumental to passing things like welfare reform, prison reform, um, that ultimately further disadvantage anyone who's racialized and especially black people in the United States. And so I was so struck by that image. And all of a sudden, instead of being this powerful woman who, I mean, effectively went for a jog for two laps to show the world that you can be an elite athlete and a mother, all of a sudden it became this discourse into like, who gets to be a bad mother. And I'm convinced that those narratives stuck in that way because they're so like politically they've been so effective in the United States to disempower people of color. Mm -hmm. I totally, I I feel you on that. And what I found really interesting just to kind of talk about the pregnant running, um, you know, side of my whole story, um, is how it was this whole, you know, national debate about, you know, me running and pregnancy and what that meant and why did I do it? And I'm just like, why not? And it's just kind of like, to me, I'm going for a run because I can. Um, but then to have it flip to, um, a white blonde runner who was also pregnant and running just a year or two after me, the first time I did it, um, and how she, you know, got this series on ESPN, Run Mama Run. And it was like trying to tell this glorified story of this yeah. pregnant running mom, like it never had been done before. Can she do it? Um, and I thought it was just really interesting. Like now I know what I thought about was, okay, well, they didn't have like the backup behind me running or whatever the whole thing is, but it always turns into how can we make the heroine a white body because mm-hmm. this black body won't we you know we're not even going to interview her we're not even going to talk about how she felt about you know this person running or include this part of the story within it um it's just going to be we need to make her the hero because we can't possibly have a black person the hero in this situation Mm -hmm. i don't know i guess i'm giving you guys my own (laughs) anecdote (laughs) (laughs) but i think that that like that anecdote like and i know as researchers like we can't just take anecdotal evidence and say like, see, Mm -hmm. but I think that our research is confirmed by anecdotes that uncoincidentally, it seems like every racialized runner has. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. And there, I was just going to say, you know, you were saying how like in the representation up until this like moment in time has been, if even if it's been there, hasn't been kind of, I don't know, is the word authentic or hasn't really actually been effective at like representing race or diversity um but recently I read some articles maybe this at Sports Illustrated where um we had all the track athletes talk about what it's running to be a black winner was that Sports Illustrated Molly Mm -hmm. yeah Um, and New York Times had an article about running while black um I know Tiana Bartoletta has had amazing some amazing blogs about her experience running while black and Alicia, you, we talked about in the last couple of podcasts, like, you know, things that you were like, not really aware that you were doing, but when you, you read Tiana's um, blog, you're like, oh, I do that too. And, 
all of these like experiences that um, the IPOC people have, you know, always had while running had completely been ignored until like right now. And now we're all like, what's that like? And oh my God, that's, is that really happening? And you know what I mean? And um, what do you think, you know, do you think this is like, it's going to be a change now or do you think that this is just yeah like I'm just wondering how how those kind of this new way of being like oh we realize this is an issue that racism is now a public health crisis and you know do you think that could change some of this this conversation going forward or else like it seems like a lot of corporations are kind of starting to like oh how can we do more like Let's look at, you know, let's, they're all kind of jumping on this. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. So do you think that this is an opportunity for them to be like, actually look in the mirror and say, oh, we need to understand this. Maybe I don't have a bias, but my, maybe a company communication wise we do, or, you know, take more responsibility for their powers. Do you think that this is going to happen? Oh. Do you think it, it will ha- is happening? I don't know. I think I, anything. yeah, I was just going to say, I think we are, at a critical turning point. I, I think this is this is not new to Black Indigenous people of color. It's not necessarily new to critical researchers, um, but it's new to sort of the the broader white population. And I think it's it's really um, a critical time for people to act. I think. Uh, my worry is that a lot of it is very performative and re- and responsive to to the current situation. So I think it's it's going to require that continued push um, to ensure that this isn't sort of a superficial um, kind of blip on the map. That we are actually actively um, working towards more equitable representation of diverse athletes. I also think um, it's a really important time for people to review their their policies, their practices. And, and I think, you know, that when you, um, when you guys had approached us to look at this issue, I realized the powerful statistics can be too, right? To be able to go and say, okay, mm-hmm. only 14% of your magazine covers um, are Black Indigenous people of color. I think I think having those number really having those numbers and that that data to back it is mm-hmm. can be really powerful. Uh, more importantly, I think it's it's um, addressing the white fragility that exists, and um, you know, and ensuring that the the true leaders are are the voices that are are being heard within all of these calls to action. Mm-hmm. I think you said a really important thing too, just about companies really taking a deep dive into their policies. And um, I remember speaking with, um, I, I'm, I'm like hesitant on calling out all these people, but I feel like out of love is just really where all this is coming because I want for things to change. But I remember talking to um, Danny Mackey about Brooks Beasts and, you know, we were talking about actually um, having more representation of moms in careers and like how important that is. Um, that last year at nationals, I did a whole dream eternity sort of meeting to kind of have like a meeting of the minds and it came up, um, race came up in the, in that whole conversation. Cause he was actually the only male that showed up to this conversation about how he could better support women runners to know that it was okay to, more than okay to uh, want to pursue motherhood and career. And um, that was really important to us to have a, the only male that showed up to it. Um, but then it turned in the conversation turned into race. And I said, well, you know, Brooks doesn't really do a very good job 
um, representing, you know, people of color. And he talked about how, well, you know, the way that we pick our team is based off of the top whatever in uh, at NCs. And I said, well, it seems to me that you're going to need to change your policy so that you guys can make sure you diversify and that, you know, that will uh, that will in turn allow for more black and brown people to see, oh, I can also do this in collegiate running as well. It's so deep. So I, I guess I'm kind of just saying like how deep that mm-hmm. it goes. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the policy, the need for policy change is just one piece of it. But another thing I wanted to say and then I'll run away, um, is if while companies are making this big push to in- diversify and include, um, you know, more black indigenous people of color within their workplace or on their magazines or within their media, whatever it is that they do, I think it's really important for companies to remember everybody that's, you know, trying to make this push to remember to pay black indigenous people of color. This is not slave labor. You know, we don't want to be doing this work for free um, to make your company look better or more marketable or especially at this time. This isn't a trend and this isn't uh, the happening thing right now. It's life or death for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. I I would love to know, like, what goes on in the like yearly meetings when they're scheduled, you know, behind closed doors in the marketing departments and at the magazines when they schedule out their covers like. Do they have like numbers that they want to hit? I don't want to say quotas, but like how, like what are they aiming for um, with representation? Is it like checking a box? Is it mission driven? Is it like what is behind those conversations? I'm really curious. And um, as important as that piece of it is, I'd also like to see like, for example, Brooks or any shoe company, Saucony, Nike, whoever, um, I'd like to see them invest in getting more um, like young black Americans into distance running, you know, why don't we start programs for kids? Like, and I'm, I'm sure Nike has, I just saw that they did invest a lot of money recently into, um, black lives matter and black communities. Um, and I'm not sure what it's going towards, but I feel like we can go a little further as a shoe company or as a, as an industry, you know, representation, huge. We need to look at that. And then also like, well, why isn't there more, you know, black people running? Why, Mm-hmm. Like, how can we introduce that? How can we actually like introduce everything that sport has to offer to more people? So, um, yeah. they need to kind of be more accountable of their power and influence in that way. For sure. Yeah. And Francine and Heather, have you guys done any research on, um, uh, business practice and, you know, that whole, the question that Molly had about, you know, yeah. how, how, how did they come up with <clears throat> numbers or how do they help diversify the workplace? No, not like I've read some in other, um, like in other fields, but never, yeah, I don't know anything about how it works in running. And it may be, there's no standard, but yeah, if anyone knows, shoot us a <laughs> yeah. 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 comment. <laughs> Next um, podcast. I, I wanted to note um, something that was also said in just your write-up, if that's okay. Yeah, uh, were, Okay. I was like, wait, hold on. Yeah. Uh, um, it was mentioned here that... Um, the um, black BIPOC is an overarching term that does not highlight the extent of the ancestral and cultural differences between individuals. I think you kind of talked about the lens and the, but within the broader parameters of this research, um, you'll discuss why representation is important within the current social context. And you mentioned these things, which is why I want to touch on um, of the COVID-19 pandemic widespread social movement that calls attention to brutality 
that police enact upon racialized communities and drawing from feminist methodologies that call for reflexivity. You also stated that um, in this research, you'll use critical race theory and post-colonial feminist theory to problematize <laughs> our practice of categorizing cover images based on race and gender um, in this study. I know I just kind of read that whole thing for everybody because I want you to digest it. You can hit rewind a couple times, but there are important, <laughs> there are important um, sub, like subjects that you kind of tied to this. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious if you can elaborate on, you know, mentioning the COVID-19 pandemic, um, all the things, feminist methodologies, uh, post-colonial feminist theory. Can I elaborate on that for our readers um, as to why that was included um, in how you were taking a look at this study? This is well, a so dream COVID- question for Heather. Sorry. <laughs> this is a dream geek out, Heather. Let's hear it. I think it's like a yeah. person. It's like it's interesting to see how everything connects, but I think it's been pretty widely documented that COVID-19 is just ravaging um communities of black, indigenous, and people of color. Um, and I think that that created, and I, you know, I think a lot of scholars are thinking that that created almost this like tinderbox of um, tension that ignited and gave rise to um, all of the social activism we see now um, with Black Lives Matter. Um, And so if we know that, like from a health perspective, we know that COVID is disproportionately impacting um, BIPOC people. And if we know that police brutality is gradually, is, um, you know, targeted explicitly towards that group, um, then I think the part that Francine was talking about with reflexivity and having to take a step back and say, like, who am I doing this research? And so we have all of these social movements and oppressions that are impacting people in the in different BIPOC communities. And then as Francine and I joke, you have these two middle class white women deciding that it's appropriate for them to have a seat at the table. Um, And so I think we really need to problematize that. And one of the reasons why she and I um, are, you know, are present right now talking about this is because academia is really similar to the covers of Running Magazine. Um, There are so many structural um, obstacles put in the way of people who are not white. Um, Making a go of it in a PhD is, you know, it's hard and it's expensive. And if your life has any kind of bump, then you're really easily derailed. So a lot of getting through mm-hmm. is just people call it luck, but I think it's actually benefiting from a lot of privilege. And so, um, you know, I think for Francine and I looking at it through the lens of race and both saying um, what is going on socially and politically to give rise to the importance of represent, like to not give rise, but like underscore the importance of representation now and also problematize like what are we doing as white researchers doing this work Um, you know, I think becomes, you know, becomes a really important and sticky issue. And I think that this is how Francine and I kind of got to the point of saying representation is good, but unless you're actually talking about the experience of being in a space where the media has kind of coded you as not belonging, then is that representation actually doing anything? And so I think that this is where the benefit of the, you know, Sports Illustrated um, stories and the different articles that that Black runners in the States are writing now. It's because all of a sudden they're present as representations of runners, mm-hmm. but they're also present as Black people in America who are mm-hmm. subject to a huge amount of violence. And so the lenses that we're using, um, we're hoping to kind of 
really be able to dig deep into that. Um, and I think be cognizant of the reality that hopefully there's, there's a day where racialized people are doing this research, you know, as much as she and I both enjoy doing it, we both recognize that like, this is, this is a place where like, in some ways we're reenacting racist Mm -hmm. social structures by being white researchers, um, you know, doing this kind of work. Mm-hmm. You mentioned something so important about the derailment, you know, yeah. like we have to win. Dalila Muhammad talked about that in um, her Sports Illustrated yeah. story about, you know, how important it is to win. I've, I mean, I want to win anyway, <laughs> but I I talked about that too. Like I have to win. I can't have any sort of mess up. I didn't make one team amongst also adding the fact that I'm a mom and like I essentially am fired from my job. You know, it's like no room for error. We've had mm-hmm. different bodies that don't look like me at all who've never made a team and can continue on with their careers. Um, it's interesting also to match up with my last sponsor that I had, um, previous to the ones that I have now, um, that fired me from my job. Um, you know, one of the one of the other women that was a mom, she was a white woman and she was like, Well, I retained my position. And I'm like, this just further drives home. Why mm-hmm. I can't make a mistake. I can't mm-hmm. have a mistake. I don't mm-hmm. think my children are mistakes, mm-hmm. everybody, but <laughs> I can't have anything that is an obstacle, a mm-hmm. bump or nothing to jump over. It has to be a very, very straight, um, in line. visual in line. Yeah. Very line, like straight path, um, or linear path mm-hmm. as far as our employers can see or our, you know, teachers or professors. But like that brings into the, another point about talking about academia and where, you know, our bodies are black and brown bodies are. And, you know, just think about growing up in school, your teachers, like how many, how many black indigenous people of color were your teachers, you know, maybe, maybe a professor in college, maybe, maybe, maybe one made it through. I mean, I don't know you, you, I'm, I'm asking because I want for people to kind of just really take a look, go deep, deep back into your upbringing and where you are now and think of how many times you even thought about where the representation was, because that's also part of the issue that we're facing right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, what I hear you saying, Alicia, is that like for, for black people to make it through, they have to walk this thin, thin line of like a tight rope of like excellence. And if they deviate at all, they're like off the edge of the case. Yeah, and it just absolutely. seems such a standard that's just like so emotionally meant everything has to be absolutely perfect there's no room for error and we all know the white privilege is all about those catching those kids who've messed up and getting them back on track and then getting you know keep having these support systems because people can't do it alone right it's not about you know it's often not about like who's who wants it more who's disciplined enough it's about the structures that are holding them up you know Mm -hmm, Mm -hmm. and we all can attribute our success to this team around us and the people who support us so um just on that point but then also I wanted to kind of talk to that you guys are saying Heather and Francine about you know how you're doing this work and kind of identifying or understanding these these issues from sociological perspective and recognizing, wow, are we really the people to kind of voice these or, you know, be in this, in this space yet we have like uh, also, we're also learning that we, you know, that um, people need this allyship of people recognizing these issues and, and saying, Hey, this, these are issues, you know, and, and we needed that. We women's rights needed that. Like I, 
saw some ads for some women's rights, women finally got the right to vote, and they were protected by 800 men or something like that. So they could march up and like demand the right to vote. Like we need men, like women need mm. men allies to um to increase like our power and feminism and equality and social justice there. So I kind of see, you know, how you guys are saying, hey, like we don't want to be the people to kind of necessarily put ourselves out here, but yet, you know, it's it's more important that you're kind of identifying the issues and, and bringing those statistics to light because otherwise the research not get done and then people don't realize the problem and then, right? Or yeah. Yeah, I think I think you raise good points, Ro. Um, and I think that dismantling all of these things within, whether it's education or whether it's within the running world, is everybody's responsibility, right? The burden can't rest solely on racialized individuals to do all of the work. And I think I think that's where Heather and I would identify is that we we are allies in this process. Um, the the other thing I would note in terms of like personally speaking, the research that I do is um, I'm a community-based participatory researcher. So it's so it's essentially shifting uh, the power and the structure of of who can do research and what what sort of um, valid as research outcomes and processes. Um, so I think that's that's also another way in ter- in terms of like challenging educational systems and sort of research strategies um, to address inequities that exist, whether it's in you know health or sports. Um, that's that's definitely something that that I have leaned into and that's that's sort of my main focus mm-hmm. now. Mm. Wow. Yeah. I well, think that's we, a good yeah, go ahead. No, I think that's a really good point. And I think if we look at, at how power operates, you know, I think Rasheen's absolutely right. Like men hold the balance of power in our society. White people hold the balance of power. And unless people are like those dominant groups are willing to work towards redistributing that power, having some kind of like power shift and things aren't going to change. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they can definitely have that too. We don't need no men. And it's like, no, actually, no, we, do. yeah. we, we don't need um, <laughs> white people to speak. Actually, we do. Like, yeah. we need each other and we, in order to make these shifts. So if anybody's saying that, just keep working, guys. Don't be like, oh, well, they said they didn't need us. They just start feeling uh, mad at you. <laughs> they want <one>. yeah. <laughs> you Yeah. Know, um, you know, my daughter does that. It's like, I don't need help. And she just can't open it. I'm like, okay, whenever you're ready, I'm going to open it for you. I'll open it for you. Um so, but this has just been so incredible. And we thank you so much for putting numbers behind it. Again, like that matters so much to a lot of people that ask you. It's just how you feel. It's just, that's not real. Um, so mm-hmm. the numbers do help in this situation. And I'm so thankful that we had an opportunity to work with you guys um, or uh, talk with you guys about the work you did. <laughs> Don't yeah. take any credit for that. Um, <laughs> I do want to ask, you know, um, you know, the purpose of this podcast is, is, because we want to do a better job telling stories of, you know, amazing women and in particular women in sports and, you know, your research is supporting women within the sports world. Um, I want to know like what parts of like your story, even getting into, you know, becoming, uh, doing this type of work should people know about, or do you want people to know, know more about? I'll let you start Heather. (laughs) Oh God. Um, I can't. That's a really hard question. I think I think because I like am a middle class white person from Canada, like, I mean, it's not lost on me how much privilege I have and how I get to be here today with like, you know, a good job and a, you know, a nice apartment because of that. 
Um, you know, and I think something that's been useful to me to think about is that like what I did notice over the course of my studies was huge amounts of sexism, whether it's in the classroom, in Mm. curriculums where there's no, you know, no female writers, where you have to make a case in your research why it's important to talk about female writers as if it shouldn't just be self-evident the way that talking about male writers is, Um, you know, everything to like going at the bar and having a man explain your research to the group having, you know, like all those types Mm -hmm. of things. And so I think whenever I, you know, I get so frustrated and I think like, well, enough. I, you know, I try to catch myself and think now, imagine if you were a female and racialized, imagine if you were a female and, you know, a member of the LGBTQ community, like how much, you know, how much harder would it be? Um, Mm. you know, and so to always keep those things in mind when I'm talking, um, and getting the chance to occupy space, like who else is at the table who might not, might not get to, might not get to talk, you know, and I think that mm. one of my hopes for this research project and for like our political, I guess like our, what's going on socially and politically now is that like people keep telling their stories. You know, my hope is that like social media platforms and magazines are just going to be flooded and flooded mm. and flooded mm. with all of these narratives um, to the point where there's honestly to the point where like that could be the content of an entire issue because for so long, an entire issue has been about like white people things or, you know, things that are socially coded as mm-hmm. things for white people, you know? And mm-hmm. so I think that, um, you know, I think that this is a huge moment for a pretty significant change. Although like that was a pretty big digression from your question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's great. It needed to be said. Thanks, Heather. Yeah. And I think, I think for me, obviously, you know, recognizing that I'm also in a position of privilege and, and somebody who's enjoyed sport and athletics and it's brought so much into my life. I always, um, you know, I recognize other people experience a huge number of barriers to accessing sports, even something that is as accepts as accessible as running, right. There's not, there's not a ton that's required. Um, but I think, you know, slowly over the years, I, I started doing obesity research and then physical activity research. And it, and it's really shifted towards, you know, social justice and physical activity and, and community-based research, which, you know, is, is unapologetically political. So the whole goal is to do the research and then try and um, co-create or co-impact change with the community. Um, and, you know, I saw, I saw a qu- great quote the other day and I, I just finished teaching a health and equities course yesterday. And I ended, um, with, you know, I, I want to use my white privilege to end white privilege. So that's, well, thank you so much. Um, this has been, I mean, I feel like we can stay on this forever. I really mm-hmm. do. Um, okay, maybe forever, but for a much longer time. <laughs> um, uh, and ladies really quick before we sign off. Alisa, you asked, is there anywhere we can follow your work? So are there um, websites, books, papers, anything that we public could access? I know with academia, it's not always super accessible, but um, anything like that you want to lay down for our listeners? Um, I I feel like Heather and I are similar in terms of not uh, being big (laughs) self-promoters. I I do have We're begging you to sign (laughs) up. I just do college website. (laughs) Yeah, I did my university. um, I do have a health equity website on Carleton University, so I can share that with you folks after. Um, And we are hoping that we will have uh, two publications um, drafted by the end of the summer based on all of this work. 
yeah. And we're able to share the kind of report you guys have written on yeah, the post section. Okay, so we'll share that report and the there's some notes. nice little graphics that go with that that kind of can just uh, show infographics that can show how to take some of the numbers there. Um, thank you, ladies, so much. It was wow. so great to have you on. Thank you. Yay, so thank you for keeping track. Major shout outs to What Cheer Writers Club Podcasting Studio, a nonprofit supporting Rhode Island's content creators and where Roshin and I record, and to Rudy Nakashima for our funky outro song. Thanks, guys. Sports stars. They're like superheroes. But they're actually real. Which is why we've made a podcast about them. You see, they've all got a story. But too many of these stories were cut short. Kobe Bryant. Payne Stewart. Flojo. Phil Hughes. Justin Fashion You. We're writing episodes about all of them. And sadly, many more. Death of a Sports Star, a new series from Crowd Network.